0: Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital and immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series, I'll be interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country and indeed in the world to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Enjoy the
1: podcast. Welcome to this special episode of Lung Cancer Voices, our Lung Cancer Canada podcast. And this is to get an update from one of the major cancer conferences that happens each year. It's called ESMO. ESMO stands for the European Society of Medical Oncology. And a number of us were were really fortunate enough to be in Paris in September. And so it's not such a bad deal to be an oncologist sometimes. So we got our fair share of um, uh, delicious French cuisine and being in in a beautiful city. And we got some really neat updates on lung cancer. And there's some important advances that were announced. So joining me to go through those are two of my friends. Dr. Stephanie Snow is president of Lung Cancer Canada. She is medical oncologist at the QE2 hospital in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and an associate professor at at, Dal, at Dalhousie University. And Dr. David Dorr, has been a long-term supporter of Lung Cancer Canada, mem- member of our medical advisory committee. He is a medical oncologist in Winnipeg at Cancer Care Manitoba, assistant professor at the University of Manitoba, and a- an affiliate scientist at Cancer Care Manitoba uh, Research Institute. So with, with all of that in, uh, to go, w- David and Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here.
2: Um, yes, thank you for inviting me.
1: It's a pleasure. I think, well, I think, Steph, it might be a return visit, and David, first time on the podcast, so happy to have you. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask uh, David and, and Stephanie for really their, their top hi- highlight, if you like, from the conference of the, of the big presentations and explain uh, what that was and why it's relevant for us in the lung cancer community and relevant in Canada And I might, because I was lucky enough to be in Paris as well, I might throw in some of my own favorites along the way. So, Dr. Stephanie Snow, we're going to come to you first, because on that last evening of the conference, there was a presidential session and a study called Code Break 200, which we'd been waiting for all through the conference. Could you tell us? I think that's your first choice.
3: Absolutely. That is definitely my first choice, Paul. Now, I wasn't so lucky to actually be in Paris, so uh, my uh, highlights were not things like croissants, but um, I was really excited to wait for this one. And of course, with the time zone, I had to time it appropriately so I could watch it live with my virtual password. So Code Break 100 was a trial that focused on one of the most common mutations. That's a driver mutation, non cell lung cancer. It's a mutation in KR but a very specific subset of KRAS mutations, something called G12C. And the KRAS molecule, when it's activated, really drives the cancer and causes it to do things that we don't want to, like, grow and spread. But this very specific G12C uh, type of mutation, we have developed a number of oral medications, including one called sotorasib, that essentially when it binds to the KRAS molecule, it does not allow it to turn on so it's almost like you tape down the light switch you can't turn that light on anymore and these drugs have been shown to be very effective in early trials where they weren't really being compared to other uh standard of care medications what we call phase one and two trials so Sodorasov is the first one we've actually seen uh, comparison to our current standard of care which is chemotherapy now this was given to patients who were known to have that mutation, the KRAS-G12C, who had previously been treated with at least one chemotherapy and immunotherapy treatment. And typically, these patients are next treated when they progress with a single agent chemo called docetaxel. So in this trial, they were randomized to either get the sotorasib oral targeted therapy versus the docetaxel chemotherapy. And we were really excited because in terms of the primary endpoint, which was progression-free survival, or how long it was from the patient starting the treatment till their cancer progressed, it was significantly improved by taking sodoracib. In fact, the patients who took the sodoracib had a 44% reduction in their risk of progressing. And what that translated to were a lot longer controlled of disease. When they looked at patients a year after they were on uh, treatment, almost a quarter of them getting sodoracin still hadn't shown progression of their cancer compared to just 10% of the docetaxel. We also saw that those patients got sodoracin, their tumors shrank more. And we also found out that they were feeling better because sodoracin overall was a much less toxic treatment compared to docetaxel. This really translated into a lot of things that are important to patients, important to their caregivers, important to us as the doctors treating them in terms of their quality of life, the time to deterioration in endpoints of things like physical functioning or having a bad cough or shortness of breath, that they were a much longer time before those things deteriorated. So given the fact that this is one of the most common side of, uh, mutations that we uh, see in non-spersonal lung cancer. So we certainly hope that this will soon become readily available for our patients, and we're just waiting to see if we get funding now.
1: Great. Thank you. So Sotiracib is the name of the drug, the subtype KRAS G12C. So my first question, either of you, how common is that? Out of, say, 100 people with lung cancer, how many of them would have the KRAS G12C? And are we testing for it routinely?
3: So we do test for it routinely as part of our panel. Um, KRAS-G12C is the most common of the KRAS mutations. And across Canada, it is going to be a bit different depending on areas. In my population here in Atlantic Canada, upwards of 40% of patients will have a KRAS mutation. And about 30% of those will have the KRAS-G12C.
1: 30% of the 40% or 30%
3: of everyone? But way more common
1: than... 15% of everybody.
3: Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So way more so common t- than we see the other uh, mutations that we typically right. treat.
1: Well, or broadly similar. So for a lot of people listening may be familiar with EGFR lung cancer, and we've done podcasts and webinars on EGFR lung cancer. So maybe about about the same rate.
2: Pretty close, I would say, uh, yeah, here in Manitoba.
1: Okay. So, okay, so Sotiracib, for quite a good proportion of patients, it makes them feel better. It's more likely to shrink the cancer than chemotherapy. It's going to control the cancer for longer. So I'll tell you a little story. After that presentation, I was in one part of Paris, and I was going to a meeting, actually with Dr. Dorr, in another part of Paris. And in the, in the middle, I was stopping to meet some of my colleagues from Ottawa. And at that time in Canada was the final deadline for us to submit from Lung Cancer Canada our support for the approval of this drug, Soteracib. That just happened to fall on the same day. So we had it all prepped and ready to go and then we were gonna update it based on the, uh, the presentation. And that was my job to update it and send it. And so I I'd, I'd, I'd prepared the email and I, all, all the stuff and then I was going off to meet David and meet my colleagues and I forgot to send it. So there I was in a, in a, in a bar, a Parisian bar with a little glass of pastis, that little sort of aniseed aperitif. It was delicious. And then I remembered, I was like, oh no. So I had to get my laptop out in the middle of this bar on the sidewalk in Paris. So hopefully we'll get Soterasib, um approved. We did get it in in time, so we can't blame, can't blame me. Anyway, so yeah, we're looking out for that. When I saw that study, I, I have to say, yes, it's positive. It's better than chemotherapy for all the reasons you outlined, Stephanie. But I was a bit disappointed despite that. I kind of thought it was going to be even better than it was. David, you're, I mean, people are listening on a podcast, but I'm watching you, David, on Zoom, and you're nodding to that. David, were you wanting more from sotorasib? Were you expecting even more of a benefit?
2: I mean, I think for all the reasons that Stephanie's already said, it was encouraging. i It would still have been nice to see people living longer receiving Sotiracib, um, given that it seemed like it was going to be uh, a significantly more effective drug. Um, and so that, that's the only hurdle I would potentially see with funders approving it here in Canada. I'm still hopeful, but whether it's with this down the road or with one of the other drugs in this space, uh, hopefully one of them will show that people yeah. will be living longer if they receive it.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I think if there are patients listening, they, you know, ask your oncologist, do you have KRAS G12C, has it been checked? because there are lots of opportunities to get onto research studies, a number of drugs uh, looking at this. Okay, well, let's keep moving along. Um, so, David, I'm going to come to you, and I think your highlight was was completely different type of study, and not not looking at a new drug treatment, but looking at some of the causes of lung cancer, and some really fascinating work from, from a group in the UK.
2: Uh, yeah, so you mentioned that The KRAS-G12C is roughly as common as EGFR. This was a research group looking at why EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer might develop. Because historically, we think of the pathway of a development of lung cancer as damage to the DNA, causing mutations, causing a cancer. But that doesn't seem to be as clearly the case for EGFR. So their hypothesis was that, well, maybe uh, air pollution is causing EGFR mutant lung cancer. So first, they showed that areas where more people have these EGFR mutant lung cancers are also the areas with higher air pollution. Then uh, they did a bunch of mouse studies. So uh, basically bench research in mice showing that number one, EGFR mutant uh, cells are present even in normal lungs, not cancer cells, but cells with EGFR mutations in the cells that are the origin for these lung cancers, when they're exposed to air pollution, it actually upregulates or stimulates the immune system, which causes a spike in a chemical called interleukin-1 beta that ends up causing or promoting the environment of these cells becoming cancer cells. So they saw more cancer cells in the mice exposed to the air pollution. If they blocked that particular chemical, it actually reduced the risk of developing lung cancers, and again, in mice. And so I think this is really interesting, both because it provides a potential mechanism for why some people who are not smokers are developing lung cancer, how EGFR mutant lung cancers are developing. And a potential pathway down the road for how some of these things might be able to be prevented, both through reduction in air pollution, but also through potentially blocking of this particular uh, chemical and really helps highlight this different pathway of cancer development, which is not something we think about uh, routinely.
1: It was, it was a really fascinating presentation and it got a lot of traction at the time and in, in, in the broader media. You explained it beautifully, uh, David. And if if I remember, uh, this was Dr. Swanton uh, who gave this presentation from, from London. He put up a map of the world at one point with uh, pollution areas. And maybe uh, could you comment on that?
2: Yeah. So I had the map actually up in front of me. The areas with the highest levels of air pollution are essentially Northern Africa, Northern and Central Africa, um, the Middle East, uh, South Asia, and East Asia. And certainly when we're talking about East Asia and South Asia, these are the areas where we know that EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer is more common. When it gets into particular parts of Africa, I think that's been less clearly delineated, but certainly in East Asia and South Asia.
1: Okay. Now, I don't want to be alarmist and put joined things together where I shouldn't be joining them together. EGFR positive lung cancer in Canada does does have a geographic distribution. In Ottawa, it's, we're at about 13% of lung cancers are EGFR, which is pretty much national average. Uh, I think Stephanie in, in in Atlantic Canada, you're a little less than that.
3: Yes. And are. then
1: if you're in Toronto, it's a bit higher. And then if you go out to Vancouver, it's 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 substantially higher. And in the past, we've attributed that to Vancouver having a higher East Asian population. Of course, recently there's been all the wildfires and you know pollution levels in Canada. Generally, I think. Have, pretty low, aren't they? But compared to the places you've mentioned, David, but should we be worried about pollution in Canada? Or is this, am I um, connecting Uh, the dots too rapidly?
2: No, I'm not sure you're connecting the dots too rapidly. But I I think there's a couple of challenges. One of them is that when we're talking about proportion of people who have an EGFR mutated lung cancer in a particular area, some of that depends on smoking rates as well. So, I mean, when you're talking about somewhere like BC or Vancouver, you both have lower overall smoking rates than somewhere like Manitoba or Nova Scotia. You also have a significant immigrant population from East Asia, which kind of complicates that interpretation as well. I do think this provides a clear rationale along with other studies that demonstrate how air pollution contributes to other health conditions that tells us that we need to be doing more to control air pollution. Fortunately, Canada as compared to somewhere like China has much lower levels of air pollution overall in in metropolitan areas, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be continuing to work to improve it even further.
1: Great, thank you. Okay. So that was fascinating, and you know, people can learn, learn more about that and uh, look online. Look if you look, Charles Swanton is his name, and uh, lung cancer and pollution. And there's a whole lot of stuff that you can find. Let's move on, just because uh, we just want to cover maybe just two or three more things um, in the in the podcast. So, immunotherapy is being, is a huge thing. So we've talked about targeted therapy a little bit with the sotorasib and Kras G twelve C. Talked about pollution. Immunotherapy is now a standard part of our treatments for many, many people with lung cancer and it's really revolutionized outcomes for many, Uh, not everyone, but for many. And there were some updates and some new things about immunotherapy. A a thing that caught my eye uh, was there there were two studies from about five or six years ago now, Uh, they're called Keynote Studies, Keynote, and they, they have numbers 407 and 189 but they were studies from a few years ago where people with one cancer uh, were split into two groups. And one group got chemotherapy and the other group got chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, a drug called Pembrolizumab. And we've known for a long time now that the group that had both chemotherapy and immunotherapy lived longer, more likely to shrink the cancer, uh, a proportion who lived for a lot longer, so we've known that for a while, but this this year we got at ESMO, we got these uh, long-term updates from these two studies and it was really, really encouraging to see that, well, it was encouraging and humbling, I, I suppose, but uh, about one in five people who went on to this study were uh, completed two years of treatment and then were still alive and well a further three years after that. So we we used to say overall, the five-year survival rate for lung cancer was, well, 10 years ago, the overall survival rate was 13%, and that was really driven by people with stage one lung cancers. But now this is a stage four lung cancer population, and 20% of them are living five years because of the addition of immunotherapy. Of course, it means we've got an awful long way to go because it means that 80% aren't, but it was a huge advance. And it was uh, it was that one of those sort of moments for me where it was like, gosh, we have come an awful long way. And gosh, we've all we've got an awful long way to go. So that was my little nugget. But there was a new study, and uh, it was called Ipsos. And David, I think you were going to tell us about that. But this was actually the final one, wasn't it? Just came after the code break presentation. I think this was almost the final presentation of the whole conference.
2: Yeah. So I mean, the Ipsos study, um, and I agree with you that the um, the keynote studies. It was a really it was really nice to see that kind of benefit, and I think we can be hoping that. Further studies continue to show these improvements. The Ipso study is hopefully going to be one of them. It was a study in people with non-curable, non-small cell lung cancer who were too unwell for the treatments like those used in the uh, keynote studies. So people who were having a harder time managing day to day or uh, were significantly older and had significant um, other health conditions where the... Medical on, the medical oncology team did not feel they would be well enough to receive one of the parts of the chemotherapy called a platinum drug, and they were randomly assigned to receive either uh, an immunotherapy drug called atezolizumab or single drug chemotherapy. And basically, what they saw was that the single drug chemotherapy sorry the single drug chemotherapy was not as good as the immunotherapy. The immunotherapy both led to a slight improvement in average length of life and what looked like an increasing benefit in a small group of people as we, we followed further out. And that benefit seemed to be especially obvious in older people who were otherwise well, or in even people with an unknown pdl one which is something we often use to guide our use of immunotherapy. I think this is an interesting study. I think It's a little bit difficult to say how it applies uh, day to day because identifying who these people are is challenging because there is no clear guideline on how to manage older people with lung cancer or people who are less well with lung cancer. And so, for example, I tend to use two drug chemotherapy and that makes it hard to say whether this is better. I just reduce the dose, but others will use single drug chemotherapy so I think this is, still, this, is, this is a study where it's encouraging. I think it's a study where it may well make its way into practice. It's just that we're going to need to continue to work on who are the people that we're most wanting to use this in. And certainly in people who, for whatever other reason, we feel are just un, too unwell for our standard chemotherapy. And apologies, I'll also mention it caused fewer serious <laughs> side effects than the chemotherapy as yeah. well.
1: Yeah. And David, there's some Canadian context to this. Uh, so Canada took part in this study. So there were a number of Canadian lung cancer patients who volunteered to, to take part in this study. And, and uh, we always have to thank our patients who, who volunteered to take part in research studies because, you know, we, we hope it will help them directly. And, and often it does. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. But we as a community learn and, and patients in the future. Benefit from people who who take part in studies, and so actually, I'll make a little plug. There's going to be another podcast that we're about to record with Dr. Cheryl Ho, um, and um, she's going to talk about how you can get into clinical trials if you're interested. So, so we're going to um, watch out for that one in the future. The other thing I was going to say about that, David, is some some work that we've done in Ottawa. In fact, it's been done elsewhere as well. Is we've looked at all of the people with lung cancer who come to us to see us in oncology and we look at how many people get treatment and 10 years ago it was just over half so nearly nearly half the people who got to see an oncologist didn't get treatment and there was another group of people who never got to see an oncologist because they were so unwell and when we looked a bit more deeply we found that three quarters of the people who didn't get treatment is because they weren't well enough and we've then tracked that over the years and what we found was that when some of the the oral medications came on the percentage of people who got treatment came up and then when immunotherapy came along it's come up further but still there's this population of people who have who historically have not been well enough and so I, I think this was a really nice study to show that actually you know people who are frailer or like you say with other you know significant medical problems don't necessarily need to be excluded from the opportunity for for effective treatment so thank you for sharing that study sorry do you have something you want to say no i was i was going to say i agree you're like, yeah you're, I, was, okay, I was going to say sure. i agree
2: with that and here in manitoba excluding whether they saw a medical oncologist or not out of people who have tissue we treat about a, a third of them with systemic yes. therapy a third of the people with stage four non-small cell lung cancer wow um, and that that's similar to other jurisdictions when I've yeah. done literature review.
1: Yeah.
2: And I imagine yeah. it's similar in Nova Scotia as well.
1: So there was, yeah, I don't know, Stephanie, if you've got that numbers from Nova Scotia.
3: Um, I don't know specific numbers, but there are a lot of patients yeah. that we see and uh, you just can't treat them. So I think this would be a great um, addition to our treatment arsenal if we yeah. do have access to a map.
1: Yeah. And when we say we can't treat people, it's not for lack of wanting to. Uh, you know, we didn't come into the, the business of oncology to deprive people of treatments. It was, it's really when people were just too sick. And when people are just too sick, what well, the treatments can be more likely harmful than helpful. So it's really nice to see now that maybe for people who are sick, there's this option.
2: Yeah. I'll, um, I'll, maybe another way of putting it is, and apologies if I wasn't enthusiastic enough about the study but I I think this does provide evidence that a wider range of people than we would have historically thought might benefit more like it would help more than it would hurt um, to give this kind of treatment but of course that still has to get through all the approvals. Yes it does
1: and so it will work its way through no doubt and we will at Lung Cancer Canada as always will advocate for approval of those treatments. I think we've probably talked enough and people might be getting bored or if they're driving home, they might've arrived by now. But so maybe just last last thoughts or last little nuggets, I'll, I'll throw in one. There was one very interesting study, which looked to try and shorten the amount of time people could get immunotherapy, only six months instead of taking it forever. And the study unfortunately was closed early, so we didn't get robust results, but it hinted that the shorter treatment might be good which may be less side effects and less cost and less time for people having to come back and forth to the cancer center so they're going to rerun the study so i'm going to look out for that one to see if we can give less treatment and be just as effective um steph would you have any last nuggets you wanted to throw out of things to look for
3: um, one great nugget that I really enjoyed was looking at addition of uh, another oral targeted therapy to patients with EGFR mutations who are progressing on first line OC which is what we usually will offer those patients. And it showed that over half of them responded again, and that meant that there was a longer time before they had to get chemotherapy. So, something to look out for for those patients that are on OC mertonib right now. There may be options that still delay the time till chemotherapy.
2: And maybe the last thing I'll mention is there were a few other studies that looked at um, looking in the blood for circulating tumor DNA. And while none of them have shown that it's ready for routine use as yet, I think there's an ongoing work that may bring that into practice as a way to monitor how treatment is going and what whether we should be changing treatment in the future. Not there yet, but yeah. interesting for the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cancers that, that sort of shed their DNA into the blood and we can pick it up, it's amazing science. Well, thank you, David, thank you, Stephanie, uh, Dr. door Dr. Snow um, for giving us your insights from, from ESMO. Um, please tune in for future podcasts. Uh, we've got some coming with, with some, some patient stories. There's the one with Dr. Ho, uh, who's gonna talk about how you can get involved in clinical trials. We'll continue to do these conference updates. The next one now will probably be the Canadian Lung Cancer Conference in February. Uh, keep tuning into Lung Cancer Voices. And if you do have questions that if about about you or your care or, or, or your family who are affected by lung cancer, uh, things that you have come up from this, please do speak to your oncology team and, and they'll be able to to guide you through it. Thanks again.
0: Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen, please send us your feedback, like, and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at Lung cancer Canada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer, or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.